John this morning. Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, so if you'll turn there with me. I've entitled this sermon, well, let me just ask you this. You, did your parents ever say to you, or did you ever say to your children, do I detect an attitude? Mm, yeah, I think we all heard it. We all know what it means. We've all had those times when we've either displayed an attitude or we've seen someone display an attitude. And that's what we're talking about this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like to call your attention to... uh, I'll get there in a second. Notice, if you will, beginning at um, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. The Christian life is as much an attitude as it is conduct. That's because our conduct is often flows from our attitudes that we embrace. The things that the Apostle addresses here in verses 31 and 32 are attitudes that amplify what he wrote earlier in verses 26 and 27. Do not be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Anger comes from inner attitudes, and those attitudes often leads leads one to, to some very destructive actions. We must ask ourselves, what kind of attitudes have we embraced? Have we put off the old self and its former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires? As the Apostle Paul approaches these kinds of things, he's not approaching something that that is foreign to humanity. He's talking about things that are, that are very common to us as human beings. 
We all develop attitudes about things as we go through life. But our attitudes, our thinking is where they start. And our attitudes must be in line with what the scriptures teach. And so he brings us down to this section in verse 31 where he talks about bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, malice. And he is juxtaposing kindness in verse 32 with maliciousness in verse 31. Bitterness in verse 31 deals with our inner attitudes. How we think about things and how those things develop in us to cause us to act in certain ways or speak in certain ways. Wrath and anger deals with our tendencies or dispositions to act on our attitudes. Clamor and slander deal with our actions or our conduct in our manner of speech that comes across in those, from those natural dispositions of our fallenness. All of these kinds of things are evil vices that must be overcome in the Christian walk. These are what some have called grave clothes from our old life that must be put away and be replaced with grace clothes that reflect the grace and glory of God in Christ. We're living, I fear, and it is very evident. We are living in days where the love of many is growing cold. Even among Christian brothers, there have been certain vices and, and attitudes that have entered in to Christianity and evangelicalism across the board that have divided brother against brother, church against church. On many fronts, these things seem to be taking place. Fellowship is broken over things that should never have caused such rifts between brothers in Christ. There seems to be, in many, an unwillingness to even listen or have a reasonable discussion about things that are taking place not only in our society but in our churches as well. Unforgiving attitudes seem to be abounding. These things are the things that the Apostle Paul is addressing. These things are not new. They happen, they've happened in every age, and they're happening in our age. The only difference is that as the days draw closer to the coming of Christ, men will become colder and colder at heart. There will be less and less ability to just sit and discuss things as brothers should be able to discuss them. And so Paul, this becomes a very, this passage becomes a very important one for us. Because as the days do grow shorter as the coming of the Lord increases, we are going to find that people are, be, are going to become more and more cold to one another. These inner attitudes that people develop spiral ever downward and so they become deceptive. And they often 
or deceive our hearts. And many times we think we're right about something and we can be totally wrong and deceived. I have seen this happen many times over in the years that I've been in ministry. James tells us these things ought not to be. They ought not to be. We lived, we all lived here at one time. We all had attitudes that were of the flesh and of the nature of the, of our fallenness in, in our father Adam. But now we, these things need to be swept away with the flood of grace that is given to us in Christ. We are to replace these sinful attitudes and actions with godly ones. This cannot be done through the power of the flesh. It can only be accomplished through the power of the Spirit working in the heart of God's people. So there's brings us to verse 32 and the positive command. All, the, all these commands up until this point are, are negative from verse 31. Everything there is negative. But where you find negative, you always find positives. And here, here is the positive. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. So what we have here is a list of words that counteract the former attitudes and actions of our former self. That self that wants to hold grudges. That self that wants to withhold forgiveness. That self that wants our hearts to become harder so that we don't feel for people. These new attitudes and actions are the result of the new life that is found in Christ Jesus and it comes from His grace. So let's look at each of the commands as we begin. I want to call your attention to the very first word in verse 32. The word be. How can there be so much meaning in a single little two-letter word? And yet, there is. Because this is a word that that has the idea of of being or existence. Be these things. It means to become, to be, to begin to be, to come to pass or to happen. Paul is telling them that there is a different way in Christ that we are to live a different atti- with different attitudes and different thinking than we had before we knew Christ. One writer states, with regard to this little word, be, The idea is that they had to abandon one mental condition and make their way, beginning there and then, to its opposite. This is the way we were. Start there and work your way to here. In other words, you were this. You had been this. Now, be this. So... The things that come to pass in our lives are to be, these things are to begin now. They had been one way, now they were to be another way. And so this word is in the present tense. The word be is a present tense verb. Be, in other words, be becoming what you are at the present time. Don't be 
what you were. This is Paul's command to us and to them. Believers are to begin and continue to become what Paul writes in verse 32. So what is that? Well, there are several things that this command to, for us to be states. And if practiced, would bring about the very nature of Christ in us. And bring health and vitality to our lives and to the lives of other people around us. Particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ. The world will not appreciate totally these things. They do appreciate them to some extent. But believers everywhere can appreciate these things because they know where they come from. The first one is be kind to one another. We shouldn't have to define this, should we? What it means to be kind. But I fear that we will not understand the command if we don't know what this, what it's actually saying and what it means to be kind to one another. Very interesting word, the word kind. It's the word, it's the word Christos. In fact, it's very close to the name for Christ, which is the name Christos. The word Christos was used by Christians from the very beginning because it is of the appropriate character of the Lord himself. He was kind. It primarily signifies that which is fit for use or fit for uh, able to be used. As an adjective, it describes the act of being gentle and caring and helpful, courteous, good, giving, showering favors upon people. It is the opposite of being neglectful, harsh, sharp, bitter, resentful. Kindness appears to be the counterpart of malice. Malice wants people to suffer for the wrongs they've committed against others and, and against those we love and seeks to pay back with harm. That's the natural course. You hurt me, I hurt you. You curse me, I curse you. That's the way the world operates. Kindness does just the opposite. It springs from the goodness of God and comes to, into play with blessings to the other person, even if it means at our own expense. And oftentimes it does. This word is used 27 times in the Old Testament. It is used of the goodness of God, the goodness of humans, the goodness of fruit as opposed to bad fruit, the goodness of speech, the goodness of precious jewels and fine gold. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Three times by the Apostle Paul. Only here in Ephesians. One time. So let's trace just a couple of other places it's used. Just to get an idea of the, the impact of kindness. Because it is it, he starts with that. Be kind. And if we start with it, then 
then it progresses onto the next things in his list. Turn with me to Matthew 11, verses 28 and 30. Because he uses this word here. Matthew uses this word in verse 30. Same word, translated by a different English word. Very familiar passage. Here it is used of the comfort and the pleasant yoke of Christ. Now a yoke is a an implement of burden placed upon an ox's back to pull a plow. Notice what he says. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is what? Easy. Same word. My yoke is kind. My yoke is easy. My yoke shows favor. My yoke strengthens. And you, my, and my burden, he says, is light. So he uses this same word to speak of Christ and his, the burden that he places upon his people is easy compared to the burden that's placed upon their backs by the world. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. It's used in the Sermon on the Mount to show kindness or goodness. By God to those who are his enemies. Listen to what he says. Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the most high. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He's kind. He does not snuff out people. Because they're sinners. He endures. He's kind to them. Gives them food. Gives them clothing. Gives them shelter. So our kindness is to parrot the Father's kindness and give good things who gave good things to those who who hated Him. It's used in Romans chapter 4 to speak of the kindness of God giving length of time for people to repent. Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's used in 1 Peter chapter 2 of tasting the goodness and kindness of God. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So translated by these words, kind, easy, better, goodness, good, gracious, all these words speak of the kindness that Paul is talking about here. The idea is that this quality encompasses everything that is appropriate and good and gracious for any given situation. My mom used to say, it never cost you any more to smile. Than it does to frown. Sometimes we think it does. 
Kindness is much like the phrase, it fits like a glove. Fits like a glove. It's good for any situation. It always fits the occasion. There is never a time when it is not useful or beneficial. It is the replacement attitude of the mind to replace the malice of bitterness and resentment. Bitterness and resentment are horrible things. And if let go, they can sour an individual seemingly almost beyond repair. To whom is this attitude of gracious ease and goodness bestowed? He says, to one another. That means those that you are connected to, those that you fellowship with. Those that you see and spend time with to one another. It is the members of the body of Christ, his church. The people who make up the assembly. This does not mean that we're not to be kind to all people. We certainly are to be kind to everyone. Galatians 6 verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those of the household of faith. It's it's more important to be kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ than it is to be kind to those in the world. Because that's how the world knows you belong to Christ. They'll know that you are mine if you have love to one another. So kindness, be kind to one another. Second, tenderhearted. Kindness breeds, or may I say, kindness breaks up the hardness of one's heart and makes it tender. The word Paul uses here is a rare word, only used twice in the New Testament. And it's a compound word, which means it's made up of two different words. One part of this word means to be well off. To be, to fare well or to prosper. The other word means the bowels, the, the intestines, the, the inner organs of the body. So when you put the two words together, it means to have the inner parts of us faring well, doing good, feeling well. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? That feeling that settles in the pit of your stomach. When you've offended someone or they've offended you. And you're not getting along. We all, it's all too familiar a feeling. So... Literally, the word means to have a good heart. It means your heart's doing good. Not your, not this thing in us that pumps blood to our body, but our, our soul, our, our inner being is doing well. Over the years, this word took on an, a metaphorical meaning to speak of the emotions and how we felt. Consequently, having a heart or inward feelings of tenderness and compassion. 
We say, my heart's breaking for them. My heart's broken. We all know what that means. That feeling that we have inside that comes from our hearts being affected by something. Peter writes, finally, all of you have unity of mind, which, by the way, speaks of attitudes. Unity of mind. Sympathy. Brotherly love. A tender heart. And a humble mind. Now, some of us are more stoic than others. I'm not an extremely emotional person. Probably more so than I used to be. Some of us are very emotional and feel to the deepest degree what others feel. But we can all have hearts that sympathize and empathize with the hardships and pain of other people, particularly our brothers in Christ. So we might say that a tenderheartedness is Sensitivity towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, which stems from kindness. It comes from kindness. When you are kind, when you are favorable, when you are helpful to other people, then your heart becomes softer and it becomes more tender to other people. So practically, kindness seeks to be a blessing to our brothers and sisters, And tenderheartedness looks to see how that blessing is taking place. We watch to see the responsiveness in our brothers and sisters. Do they understand our speech? And is it causing them to be blessed? Is it imparting grace as they hear our words and see our actions? If not, then we stop. And we, we stop that line of communication and we start a line of communication that is a blessing to them. Paul says, don't speak in ways that tear down. Speak in ways that build up. And in that way, we obey the command of Scripture found in 1 Peter 3, 9. I'll start at 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For this, to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. Every single one of us here knows that when we bless others, we're blessed more by their blessing than if we were blessed ourselves. That's why Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. Because when you give and you bless others with your giving of yourself to them, you are more blessed than they are in receiving it. I don't know if You remember the show Family Ties? It used to be on TV years ago. I think it was an 80s show. We watch it sometimes because of the great one-liners in it. We watched an episode this past week where 
a brother and sister were in competition. The brother ended up winning the competition, but his sister came in second. So he gave up his competition and pulled it out so his sister could win. And his sister bragged because it's the first time she'd ever won anything over her brother. But then she felt sad that he didn't win. And he said, don't worry about me. I'm quite happy where I am. Because he had given it to her. Jesus commanded, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. If that's true of the world, surely that's true even more so of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Can we not bless people even when they are many times not a blessing to us? That's what it means to be tenderhearted. Notice forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. Here's the word charizomai. It has the word, that word charis in it, which is the word for grace. Forgiving one another. Being gracious to one another. It's used, when it's used of people, it has the idea of saying or doing something agreeable, showing favor or kindness or pleasantness. It's letting go of past wrongs. This word is used many times in the New Testament. It's used of Jesus curing diseases when it says in Luke 7.21 that He, on many who were, who were blind, He bestowed sight, bestowed, He gave them their sight back. It's used of the... Uh, Slave who owed the king 10,000 talents and the king forgave him his debt. And then he went out and found another slave that owed him a small amount of money and he wouldn't forgive. Remember that story? It's used of granting something that is not deserved, such as God granting salvation and repentance to sinners. The best verse here. That I, that I think I see in this, on this particular point is Colossians 3.13. Which goes right along with what Paul said in Ephesians. That we are to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. You have a complaint? Sometimes complaints are legitimate. When they're legitimate, then there needs to be apologies and forgiveness granted. That means that you let go of it. You see, when a, when a debt is forgiven, you're no longer liable for the debt. Almost all Bible translations translate this word by forgiving. Why? Because there's no better display of grace than one to forgive a sin or a trespass, especially when one is committing the sin, despises the other one that's being sinned against. 
Forgiveness becomes an unmerited act of kindness, which is what grace is. Graciousness is the antithesis of bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, and slander. And in fact, they are counteracted by the work of grace and forgiveness. That's what happens when a sinner who hates God becomes a lover of God. God has forgiven them. He has let their sins go. He does not hold it against them. This is what was said by the Apostle Paul, or about the Apostle Paul by the other disciples. They said, this is the one who used to persecute us and he is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Remember, they were all afraid of him. Barnabas took him in and they realized that he had met the Lord and they received him. When like-kinded lovers of God come together, they should emulate the same kind of gracious, forgiving spirit that is the character of their Lord. The words one another have the idea of a reciprocal act of graciousness. You forgive me, I forgive you. We live together in harmony because of Christ. We heard in the video downstairs this morning that when the lady who went went to Papua uh, for MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, she trekked from one village to another across uh, hard terrain. And she got to one village. I said, we're going. They, she saw evidence that there had been a battle. And then she came to a village and... The spirit in that village was where a missionary had come in with the gospel and that village was so different from the other villages that she had been in. Why is that? Because Christians are to live together in kindness and tenderheartedness and with a forgiving spirit that says, if I've been offended or if I've offended someone, we are able to forgive each other and move on and serve Christ together. There is a reason why it's reciprocal. Notice the last phrase. As God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. Is that just a mere reminder? There's two ways of looking at it. You could look at the phrase as a causative act or causative statement, which would be translated because or since God in Christ forgave you. And that would be, that would be good if you could say, well, God forgave me, I I must forgive you. It's either causative or it's in, by way of manner, which would be in that way. So translate it or, or like that. Forgiving one another in that way. As God in Christ forgave you. I think it's talking about the very nature of Christ himself. I think it's talking about the kindness of God in forgiving us. And not holding our sin against us because of Christ. 
He is exhorting them to behave in the same gracious manner that God behaved toward them when he saved him them and gave his only son for their wicked souls, which they did not deserve. And which we do not deserve. God's gracious act of forgiveness should motivate our forgiveness. God's gracious act of forgiveness was in Christ. It was in Christ that he set the standard for our forgiveness of others. God's gracious act of forgiveness is not selective in terms of the sins committed. It does not matter how much someone has sinned against you or how long they have sinned against you. When it comes time to forgive, you forgive. God's gracious act of forgiveness was granted to his enemies in Christ before they repented. God's gracious act of forgiveness in Christ was both willing and sacrificial. And it was accomplished as he gave up his life for those whom he forgave. We cannot forgive others and live for ourselves at the same time. There is a, there is a sense of self-sacrifice in forgiving others of offenses toward us. The last note here that I want to leave with you is on this word forgave is that it is an, it is a aorist middle indicative. Now here's what that means. It means that the event of God forgiving them took place in the past for the personal benefit of the one who was acting to forgive and it's done as a matter of fact. So in other words, he's saying that God forgave them not for their benefit, but for his own benefit. God forgave because he's the one that gets the benefit from forgiving. Now turn that around. When you forgive others, when they, when they come to you and, and ask your forgiveness for something they've done wrong towards you, and you forgive them, and you let it go, it impacts you more than it impacts them. When this is all put together, it speaks of the cross. The cross was where God punished His Son for sin. The cross was where the wrath of God was satisfied. The cross is the historical landmark of God's grace. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How has God been gracious to you and to me in Christ? Count the blessings. Name the benefits. And then turn that on others around you. And love them and be kind to them. Be tender hearted toward them. And forgive them. Because that's what Jesus would do. And that's what he did. God has given us an example to follow.
And when we show graciousness and forgive, we release the grace and that becomes a soothing, healing agent for those who are suffering under the weight of some kind of guilt and blame. Reminds me of the words of the great old hymn at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. By God's word at last my sin I learned, then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. To the cross where forgiveness is free and full and forever. That's how we ought to live. I trust we will do so by God's grace. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this Lord's Day and for the blessing of being together as your church. We pray that you would speak to hearts this morning in a in a gathering such as this it's very likely that there's someone who has been offended or is offending someone else i pray that there would be that father there would be forgiveness and graciousness and tender-heartedness and kindness shown to one another so that your grace might work its work in our lives and fill us with the very same character that our Lord Jesus displayed. Do this, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, just an announcement or two.